Welcome to the Dry Bones Ministries podcast. Each week, we'll bring you inspiring homilies and powerful stories from real Catholics, all about the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christ and His Church. If you're interested in supporting the work that we're doing, you can visit drybonespgh.org or follow us on social media at drybonespgh. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you are reminded of how much the Lord loves you and that you hear His invitation for you to come to life. We finished last time talking about law and freedom. These two things that seem to be opposed to each other, kind of like oil and water. And uh, the two images that we used for the, the expression of law and freedom, one was a series of stoplights, red lights and green lights, that were things outside of myself, and they might be intelligible to me or not. I might be able to figure out the pattern or maybe know why it was read at this time and not so much at this time. If you've ever sat at this light down to make your way onto, is that union? It it doesn't, it changes day by day. It's the most infuriating light ever. Um, It does a great job. I have no problem with that stoplight, but it needs to get its act together. So that would be an example of just irrational sort of um, why is this thing not turning green. The second example um, we used was that freedom and law should be are more akin to like a an athletic training program or even something like a diet that it's based not so much on what's out there it's based on what's in here and it's in response to that and it's it's to help that to grow and to foster what's hidden not hidden what's in there in potential to release that to a kind of full flourishing So those were the two opposing images that we had. And the one we said was the way most people interpret morality, the way maybe it was taught for a long time, what we'd been talking about the previous few weeks, that uh, morality was seen as a kind of uh, law that had to be followed. Whereas what Pope Paul VI, and especially Pope John Paul II, in those two encyclicals were trying to, to talk about, which was really the sort of flourishing of moral theology after Vatican II, was that this is a very organic vision of what the moral life should be, of what right and wrong are. And it's not so much about laws outside of me, but about who I am and what's the best way for me to grow. So that's the context then for just what we're going to talk about tonight, which is, um, we'll call it harmony in the soul, because I think that's what Plato called it, so, you know, you can't be Plato. But... uh We're going to talk about that and then the emotions, because that's a huge part of the moral life that is also quite misunderstood historically. And that'll lead us into a discussion of virtue, which we'll really talk about next week, the virtues and the vices. That's sort of the key vehicle of the moral life in our lives. And once you understand virtue and the beauty of it, uh, the church's teaching on all of the Ten Commandments, which we'll get into after that, the specifics of right and wrong, it, it's got to be understood in this context of virtue and growth and organic wholeness. So that's just putting all my cards on the table. 
So uh, I found some more pictures of redwood trees. You know, if you go through my Google search engine, there's a lot of redwood forests and sequoias, and uh, I've become obsessed. They're awesome. They're really great. So uh, this is a, a and just look, there, if you can see on the right-hand side underneath where it says passions, that's a guy looking up. That's how big the trees are. It's a gigantic tree. And uh, as I think I said, spiritually, that's supposed to be us. So that's pretty awesome. It's a high vision. We ended with the trailer for the Tree of Life last time that we're supposed to know and choose and feel greatness. We weren't created for mundaneness and tepidness, half-heartedness, milk-toastness. We were created for glory and excellence. And so this is how we get there. So just a taxonomy of the soul. This is classic stuff. This is Plato and Aristotle adopted by Augustine and Aquinas. It's, it's sort of the best way to say, okay, so we have a body, you can identify the parts, hands, legs, torso, head, neck, whatever. Well, the soul has different activities too, parts, although that's a misleading term. But essentially, we could say there are three parts to the soul. The soul does three different things. The soul has the ability to act three different ways. And these are all really basic. I can know things. Not just know about them, I can know them. And know their purpose. The animals can know things too, in the sense that, you know, the zebra on the Serengeti knows what's good to eat and what's not. It knows when a predator is approaching. But it doesn't know the purpose of things. It has consciousness, but not self-consciousness. The zebra doesn't wonder about, you know, the meaning of life. And the zebra doesn't despair. There's not collections or anthologies of the great poets, zebra poets, down through the ages, you know, hating the lions and talking about the glories of shrubbery. You know, those doesn't happen with the zebras, but it does with us because we can not just know things, we can know about them, we can know their purpose. We can really see them for what they are, Adam naming the animals in the garden. We ask the all-important question, why? And that's the beginning of wisdom that should lead us eventually up the mountain to the one true God himself. So our souls, the intellect, we know things, we're eager to know things. If that's not quashed out by education over the years, we're, we're inquisitive. People going to the zoo, you know, young and old, it's just like, nah, that's cool. What, 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 you know, why is the redwood that tall? You know, we're, we're made to want to know things. Not just know about them, but to know them, the nature of them. What's their purpose? Why are they here? How do they fit into the whole? How do they relate to me? Our souls also choose. We choose to do things. And this is different than just knowing them. The famous quote from St. Paul, we do know things, and sometimes we don't do those things. And then there are other things that we know we shouldn't do, and we do those. So knowing and choosing are two different things. I can see what's out there, and then I can choose to walk towards it. Or I can choose to walk away from it. Two different actions, knowing it and choosing it. And then the third part is that we feel things. We have 
what they'll call passions, what we would call emotions. That's not an unimportant part of us. You know, the famous uh, example of Spock from Star Trek, a thinking and a choosing person, but not a feeling person. His race, they're, uh, I forget what race they are now, um, but the, yeah, they're, uh, they don't feel. And that's Captain Kirk's just, you know, they're great friends, but he gets so frustrated at Spock, like, damn it, man, can't you feel? Spock doesn't. But we do. We're human beings. So we know, and we choose, and we feel. So what the ancients and what Aristotle, uh, Aristotle and uh, Plato and Augustine and Aquinas, this is sort of what we were talking about last time. For us to be working properly, all these three parts are working together. We see the path ahead of us and we choose that path and we go along that path with freedom and joy and ease and pleasure. That's the human soul working properly. When it's working not properly, and Plato's famous image of this is like a charioteer. He has a chariot and there's two horses there. And if the horses aren't obeying his guidance, one is sort of veering this way and one's veering that way, the chariot's not going to win the race. In fact, it might go off the track and crash. That the intellect is supposed to lead. What we know to be true, we should choose to do, and we should choose with ease. When the will doesn't do that, then it becomes in charge. I want to do it, even if I know it's wrong. A lot of sin is like that. And then if the passions are in control, this is the worst state of all. The ancients and the saints refer this as to the bestial side. We could become like gods, but we've become like beasts. The passions are in charge. I'm not even so much choosing as just sort of being pushed along by gluttony or lust or anger or whatever it is, fear. I'm not really in control at that point. It's a, it's a runaway chariot. So the soul has a certain order to it. I should know what's good, I should choose that good, and I should feel good about knowing and choosing that good. That's harmony. That's that power and integrity. And we said sin sort of breaks that apart. It causes chaos in the soul. Things aren't ordered as they should. I'm not working and functioning properly. Things are kind of a mess. But we're not made to be like that. Sin introduces this chaos. Grace fixes it. And grace is going to be the sort of the principle there that's planted. But I'm going to be sort of the gardener, too. I'm going to have to work and put my own effort into helping the Lord fix me. It's going to involve my will and my intellect and eventually my emotions as well. This is all a little abstract, sorry. The way this is done is called virtue. When it's done badly, it's vice. But this is virtue, which is simply a moral habit, which means a habit of my choosing. It's not a habit that I have like breathing. I don't really choose to do that. You know, that just happens, luckily. I would spend a lot of my time forgetting to breathe, and, you know, that would be a whole problem. That'd be a large part of my day. But these are things that I choose to do. I choose to do these things. And when I do them 
intentionally, time and time again, they become not just this action over here of, say, telling the truth. I did it on Wednesday to that person, and then on Thursday I also told the truth to a different person. And these aren't unconnected events. We're not like that. What we do here influences what I'm going to do later the next day. And what I do there can influence what I'm going to do later the next day. So if we're doing well and building up a kind of habit within us, as the saints will say, we eventually become what we do. So if I'm a truth teller, that becomes a part of me. That virtue is now like, you know, an arm or a leg for me. That's part of my soul, part of who I, who I am. And conversely, if I don't, if I lie, I lied on Wednesday to that person, I lied on Thursday to this person, then I become not just a person who lies. It's a little deeper than that. We don't say that. We say, you are a liar. That's more intimate. That it's become a part of me, like a cancerous growth almost. So these habits form who I am, because what I do one time does influence what I do the next. So we want to kind of build up this strength. We're either building harmony in the soul or introducing more chaos. There's not really like a neutral option there. So the moral habit of choosing a virtue is my ability to do what's good, telling the truth, saving someone who's in distress, having the courage to do that. If I have the virtue, say, of honesty or courage, when I do this good thing, I'm going to be able to do it easily because it's part of who I am. It's not some sort of uh, unused muscle. If I'm not used to telling the truth and I finally get cornered, and I, there's no way out, really. It's tougher for me to tell the truth. Or say there is a way out, but I really want to tell the truth this time. I don't want to lie to that person. But my whole impulse is telling me, just lie. You do it all the time. Don't worry about it. It'll go away. Contrast that to the person who just tells the truth all the time. It's, they're not going to have a problem doing it. Yeah, I'll tell the truth, take the consequences, whatever. It's not hard for them to do that. So we're going to be able to do the good. We're going to do the good thing easily. We don't have to overcome all these obstacles within ourselves to do the right thing. And here's the kicker. We're going to enjoy doing the good thing. This is very Catholic. Not to get um, interdenominational, but as we said last time with Pope Benedict, the, these ideas sort of filter down into lived experiences. And some of the ideas last time we saw of like Occam and these guys who thought it was all about God's will, that ends up having bad effects down in history, as Benedict would say, even on the universities. And they're all splintering apart because of this idea. So for here, the idea was that we should take pleasure in doing the good thing. Now, the separation of the body from the mind and the soul that took place partly in the Reformation and wound its way down through the philosophers, where you have some of the great moral philosophers of the Enlightenment, particularly Immanuel Kant, 
who will look at the moral life as something that it has to be about what's doing what's right. And insofar as I feel good about what I've done, that's a little selfish. So the best thing I can do is the most right thing that's the most difficult thing for me to do that I don't take any pleasure in. Mother Teresa, when she walked down the street in Calcutta to use Kant's moral philosophy, which was the most popular of all, Mother Teresa walking down uh, the street in um, Calcutta, seeing the beggar there, the deplorable in the um, gutter, if she were to take that person up and scoop them up, as she did for so many people, and take them back to the hospital and clean them and personally care for them and tell them that God loves them, since she took pleasure in that, since it, it made her feel good, in Kant's mind, that wasn't really a good act. It was pretty selfish of Mother Teresa to do that. I mean, he didn't say that directly to Mother Teresa. I would pay money to see that conversation, but that's kind of the idea. So it's a really harsh morality, and, and this doesn't just end up in the philosophy books. It gets filtered down into the way that even Christians lived. So the idea, and this is sort of my big point tonight behind this, is that the idea be behind morality shouldn't be that I'm always at war with myself, going against what I want to do to do the right thing. I'm just going to white-knuckle it and grin and bear it, and that's the whole of the moral life. And if I hold on long enough, and I'm still doing that when I die, God will say, good for you. You held on. It was rough. Every single day, everything that you did was really, you wanted to do something else, but you stuck it out. That's really good for you. That is not totally untrue, but that is and this is not politically correct to say, that's a very Protestant way of looking at God and the moral life. The Protestant work ethic and so forth. It did great things for the economy, but there was a reason that the Puritans wore all black. Very, well, this is, yeah. Gotta know your context. That's... We wear all black because we're Catholics and we're doing good sacrifices, not like them. Um, but no, the, for, if you look in, in the Dutch paintings of the time, there was a real somberness to the thing. Whereas, you know, if you went down to Italy, you know, they're all taking siestas and drinking wine and wearing colorful clothing. There, there was just a difference in the cultures there. But it was a difference in the morality, too. And so this is the big thing, that this is the organic vision of the church, which again goes back through the scriptures, back even to the pagan philosophers, based on human reason, is that doing the good should be fun. And it shouldn't always be hard. Once virtue has become a part of my life, once telling the truth isn't a thing that I have to like go to war with myself about, it's just something that I do. I tell the truth. And, you know, I feel good about it. I'm not constantly fighting with myself. Telling the truth is an easy example. As with all things in the last 50 to 60 years, where this comes really into stark contrast, the church's vision and the culture's, or maybe we could even say Pope John Paul II's vision and the dissenting theologian's vision, was in the matters of the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments. 
if there was supposed to be a harmony in the soul, if I can know what the purpose of my body is, of marriages, of sexes, of the complementarity of the sexes, if I can know that, and I can choose that, and I do know that and do choose that, then eventually my emotions, my passions, my desires will be formed so that it's not that hard. That's not a false sort of carrot out there at the end. This is what the Christians call the virtue of chastity, that my soul is ordered and structured and strengthened and whole enough so that I'm not sort of fighting against myself all the time. Well, don't sleep with that person or don't do that, you know. The person who has chastity just sort of isn't concerned with that because their, their soul is sort of strong and pointed towards the good that way. They respect marriage, they respect sex, they respect the other sex, they respect themselves, they know the body. Whereas the culture will always say to have any moral teaching about anything that involves this one desire, this one emotion, not any of the others, but just this one, to have any teaching on that is unnatural. It'll put you in constant opposition with yourself because we, hey man, we're made to be free, especially when it comes to the sixth and the ninth commandments, when it comes to sexual desire. And that any block in that is kind of unnatural and is only going to result in sort of unhappiness, mental instability, you know, all these sort of things that are proposed as if you don't sort of go along with your urges and desires, if you don't let love reign free, you're going to end up unhappy and at war with yourself and psychologically messed up. That's the real root of where all this is going. So for the Pope, then, he's coming from this thing. No, this is possible. I can understand what marriage is for. I can understand what sex is for. I understand what my life is for. And when I live like that, maybe not at first, but eventually especially with God's grace through the sacraments, this becomes easier. It might not always be the easiest thing. I might fail. But the life of virtue, if I'm living it, does get easier with God's grace. Not that you become sort of boring, but that you actually, in the Pope's mind and the Church's mind, become stronger. You have the virtue of chastity, not the vice of lust or unchastity or whatever. So let's go to the passions then. That's the ancient word for what we would call the emotions and what could sometimes be called feelings. This is a big category of things. It's a big part of our lives. And how to deal with them is pretty important. Uh, people have spent a lot of money in therapy trying to figure this out. Lots of hours. And that's, I'm not mocking that. That's not bad at all. But this is a huge part of ourselves that's really complicated and kind of tough to figure out sometimes. There are different reactions to the emotions, even in the ancient world. One is sort of what we've just been talking about, which has been, for the past 60 years, Western civilization's reaction to sexual emotion, which is just, you don't put any restraints on it and just let it flow. That's the healthy way to deal with it. The ancients had that too. 
just you give in to any pleasure. That's the way to enjoy life, which is ultimately kind of meaningless. So you might as well get out of it what you can while you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That's one response to the emotions. The other is what they call stoicism, which would be more like Spock, which is just you pretend the emotions have no impact on your life, and you try and minimize that impact, and you sort of shove them down over here. I'm going to think through everything rationally. I'm going to choose what I think through. I'm going to minimize the, the effect that emotions have. There's something really good about that. And there's something uh, inhuman about that, too, in the church's eyes. It doesn't quite work. And, you know, this plays out... Well, there's a lot of examples of this, but, you know... Yeah. This, especially for men in America in the 50s and 60s, this can become a kind of model, the stoic model of, you know, Clint Eastwood and these guys... And there's a lot of great things about there. But, you know, I've had friends who, you know, they've gone to the funerals of their wives and just, you know, they're not going to shed a tear because it's sort of unmanly. And they're not going to really even admit that they're feeling sad. It's just like, well, God had some purpose for that. Let's move on. It's like, hey, man, I think you can mourn. That might be. I don't think (laughs) you can do it. So there's a lot of examples like that. Um, So... The emotions, then, how do we deal with them? Well, this is what Aquinas says. And this isn't just sort of quoting some sort of uh, abstract theologian. This, I think, is the beauty of of the Catholic Church and its theology, which is that these things are based on the science, the moral science of Aristotle and Plato, which was tested generation and generation for hundreds of years And then it was seen in the light of the ultimate revelation of truth, which was Christ himself, contained then in the scriptures and the life of the church. And the brightest minds and the holiest minds, like St. Augustine, of the church, looked at that and said, yep, that's the closest, most accurate reading of taxonomy of the soul that we have. Let's go with that. That's the best version of it. There are all these other competing ones. They, they don't really capture the fullness of truth. This one does. And then when we see it in light of the gospel and what Jesus says, there's all these other interesting things that we can see it growing. So this isn't just a random choosing of like categories. This is like a scientific experiment, but done for the moral life that checks out every generation, and it checks out by the smartest people and holiest people around, and it checks out by, like, the saints who couldn't even read and write, but lived this way. So it checks out on every level, from the high parts of society to the most humble and sometimes the holiest. So what are the feelings? Well, We have two different types of feelings. We have physical feelings. I haven't eaten for eight hours. I feel hungry. Uh, I didn't get enough sleep last night. I feel tired. There there are bodily feelings that we have uh, that we're all familiar with. The emotions are more complicated than that. They're feelings of the soul, not just of the body. The body has internal stimuli or something like, you know, I I haven't gotten my nutrients, so I feel hungry and my stomach rumbles 
and I know what to do about that. I need to eat. Well, for the emotions then, the psychological feelings, there's things that happen in my life. Someone does something and that makes me angry. Uh, I see something really good and I want that thing. Not for selfish reasons, but just because it's a good thing. I, I would like that, uh, you know, friendship or something like that. And so I feel things. I feel a desire for the friendship. I feel anger at, you know, whoever wronged me. Those are things out there and they affect me, not just in terms of how my body feels, although they can because we're unified, so, you know, our blood pressure grows up when you get angry. But they affect my soul. I feel joyful. I feel sad. The Dutch uh, psychologist from the last century spent some time in a uh, Nazi concentration camp and then came to America and was a psychologist and did psychology as a Catholic using the categories of the church, not Freudian categories. Or He used Catholic categories to talk about the soul. Um, um, Conrad Bars was his name. Um, and he had this to say, bodily feelings are easily understood and dealt with by all of us. Our emotions are much more complex and are therefore a ready source of confusion and misdirection. You throw a little original sin into this and a little selfishness and the fact that our lives are pretty complicated and the emotions can be kind of mistaken for each other or combined in different combinations. And you feel like, and you can, yeah, feel like, well, I don't really know what's going on. And that's why it's, you know, you go to a wise person and you ask, or you go to your friend, or you go to your parents, or you go to, you know, someone that you trust and say, like, hey, can I just run this by you? Uh, this is what's been going on. And sometimes even just you talking about it, you kind of figure it out. And then other times you need advice from a wise person and say, like, okay, so this is what's going on here. Maybe sort this out. You know, is this really the reason that, you know, we've all been there. Bars talks about the emotions as Aquinas does, as the motors of the soul. They're the things that sort of move us. They move us either towards what's good or away from what's evil, hopefully, if we're doing virtue. So when I see something that's good, that I love, it's going to give me pleasure, I desire it, that's good. And when I see something that's evil, something that disgusts me, something that repulses me, I should, you know, feel an aversion to that kind of thing. So there's two different types of emotions here. There's emotions that are just internal, and then there's emotions that push me into action. And so these are sets of opposites here. Love and hate, desire and aversion, delight and sadness. Love is going to, they say, be the root of all the emotions. So it could be something as silly as a, uh, well, it's Lent. We'll still use, say, like a, 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 the most delicious chocolate chip cookie you've ever eaten. It's warm there, it's on the stove. And this is a pretty simple example, but th I love that chocolate chip cookie. I want that chocolate chip cookie. Not for any selfish reasons, it's just because chocolate chip cookies are delicious and they're awesome. And so I love it. Not in the way I would love a human being, but... I appreciate the goodness of the chocolate chip cookie. 
and I would desire that to be inside my belly. So I don't have it yet. I desire it. I want the good chocolate chip cookie. And when I do have the chocolate chip cookie and I'm eating it, I feel delight. It's awesome. The flip side of that is hate. You see something terrible, and you hate that that is here. You don't want that to be a part of you. You want nothing to do with that. You feel a kind of aversion to it, a disgust. And the fact that that thing exists and is part of your life, it doesn't fill you with delight. It fills you with a kind of sadness. So those are basic emotions that we have. We're either attracted towards the good or repulsed by the evil. And then when we see these things happening, we can respond and act once these emotions prompt us. If we have hope that I can accomplish the tax, if I can fix the evil, if I can protect the good from something that's threatening it, it's going to prompt me into action. Or if I see that it's not possible, then I despair. I lose hope. When I see that it's possible to do something, I have courage or daring to fix the good, to fight the evil. And when I see that I can't win or that's not possible, I fear it. I run the other way. And then last but not least there, on its own category, without an opposite, is probably the most complex of all the emotions, which is anger. Anger is sort of the real um, mechanism of the others. Now, all of these are neutral. They're, they're not neither good or bad. When we see love and hate, you're like, well, love's better than hate, obviously. Delight's better than sadness. But this depends on what the context is. All of these are neutral. If I feel love at the right thing, that's good. If I feel hatred at the wrong thing, that's not good. So, say I see my friends having a good time. Well, that should be a nice thing. I should love that. It should be attractive that, you know, they're having a good time. I should desire that they should always have a good time. That they're having a good time delights me. Now, if I have jealousy, or even worse, envy, if my friends are having a good time, I hate that for whatever reason. Maybe I'm not a part of it. Maybe, you know, I don't know. And I, I feel aversion to that. Well, look at them having a good time. That uh, makes me angry. <laughs> and I can be quite sad, maybe self, uh, sad for myself. This, doesn't, this good thing, my friends having a good time, doesn't give me delight. It brings sadness. So the emotions are neutral, and depending on what the situation is, they can be either good or bad. This is most true for the last one, which is anger, which is really complicated. Because anger can be one of the best things in life. If, we don't, if we're not angry about things that are evil, then there's something a little messed up about that. We should be angry. That shouldn't happen. Um, I remember my college roommate was uh, living in D.C. in law school, and he lived, you know, a few blocks from campus at Catholic U, and the neighborhood wasn't great. Um, so... Um, anyway, the quickest way for him to get to the law school was to take this back alley, um, you know, which was a long alley behind all these uh, side streets. And one day he was walking there, and there was an, uh, an old man with a cane who was 
walking, and it was windy, and it was cobblestone, so it wasn't like an easy walk. So he's walking with his cane, and there were a couple kids there, maybe 10 or 11, and they were just following this old man with his cane as he was trying to get, and they kept kicking the cane out. You know, and it, my roommate was walking, he could see this happening from like a few blocks away in this alley, and I remember him saying he just, uh, he got so upset that he, you know, had all these books and laptops and everything, and he just sprinted up and screamed at the kids. I think for legal reasons, I don't think that he hit them, but, um, but, you know, that was the type of thing that should have made him angry. And if he had just, you know, if it was today, just sort of taken out a cell phone and kind of filmed it and being like, oh, isn't that crazy? There's something wrong about that. That we should feel angry at evil things. But if we're angry at not evil things, and if anger can kind of take over us, then that's not good either. So. The things on the left, they're just sort of the way things are in my soul. The way the things on the right, they provide me the energy to do things. So the emotions, are there's kind of like a homeostasis in me of the emotions, and then there's the emotions out there. The two classic images here are, you know, there's the electrons all bouncing together, lighting up the light bulb. That's my emotional state inside. And then, you know, the sports car, the, the emotions drive me to do things in the world, to either, you know, act courageously or despair, to fear or to hope to use anger well, or to use anger badly. Just two examples here, of maybe in a, in a more concrete way of what we're talking about. And this is from um, the guy who was very influential in John Paul's encyclical, and then also the catechism. This is Surveys from Care as a Dominican moral theologian. But this is two examples of virtue, just to make it a little more concrete. He says, the first is that of a child learning to play piano. Clearly, the child must have some natural potential for music. He must have an ear for music and the necessary physical skill to hit the keys. So his mother signs him up for piano lessons. At first, the child probably feels the piano lessons to be very restrictive, demanding, and unpleasant. He can't express himself through the piano yet, and besides, he is forced to do tedious drills and exercises which seem to him to be unrelated to music. Of course, if he continues to practice, he will get better, and soon he will develop both a love for the piano and a true capacity to make beauty. His hard work has paid off, and now he is free to do things he never imagined before, like play a piece of music on sight or improvise his own melodies. He now has a piano playing virtue. Second example. An adult learning a foreign language. At first the task is daunting. She must memorize a huge vocabulary and learn the rules of grammar. It's very taxing and the student feels very confined by the complex of laws governing the new language. She cannot express herself clearly and spends most of her time trying not to sound completely ignorant by using a wrong word or putting a verb in the wrong tense. However, with enough practice 
as well as exposure to those who have already mastered the language, she will soon begin to see improvement. She will be able to express herself better, to think, to tell jokes, to read novels, maybe even to write poetry, all in the new language. Best of all, when she travels to the country where her newly acquired language is native, she will be free to communicate with the persons there. She now has the language-speaking virtue. I looked far and wide for better examples because, speaking of we feel aversion to things, I tried both of these things, and I was terrible at both. So these examples don't really... They bring in my mind memories of like, yeah, I didn't practice for the piano lesson, which is in 10 minutes, and I, you know, I never got to that piano playing virtue. And I mean, I took every romance language out there and I can speak none of them. You know, how many hours did I waste in Spanish and Italian and Latin and French? And I can speak English. I could go to none of these countries where they were native and converse with them. So those examples bring up that. But you can think of others. And the point, and we'll sort of bring this to a close here tonight with this point, and I've sort of alluded to it already, that the virtues are, for us, the vehicle and the pathway to flourishing, to excellence, not just in one particular area of life, playing the piano, learning a language, not just with one area of the moral life, being smart, being dutiful, being happy, not just with one particular virtue, being honest, being courageous, being chaste. The point of the Christian moral life, the point of living the life of virtue, is that they all fit together. And when I am stronger in one area, that helps me to become stronger in another, and that helps me to be stronger in another, so that this full harmony a kind of symphony of the soul, that each section is going really well, and together it builds into this beautiful music, a real harmony, no bad notes. The redwood tree grown tall and flourishing, that's supposed to be our moral lives, not constantly at war with one another, feeling love for the right things, hating the right things, hoping in the right things, despairing maybe of, you know, these particular things, despair in a good way. But this is all supposed to work together based on who I am and how I work and what I was made to be and made to work for. So the organic vision of the Christian moral life lived out in very day-to-day ways. That the way I live my life, this is sort of the plan for it, that I'm supposed to be happy, which means that I'm doing good things for the right reasons, in the right way, that I'm choosing them easily because I've, I've, or I'm working on choosing them more easily. It's getting easier for me to play and to speak the language of love that is the truth of God. And doing that should bring me great joy not sullen and depressed. But even in dark times, bubbling up the hope, the knowledge of who I am and what I was created to be. If you read those stories of Christians in dark times, 
And just to tag along with what we watched last week, the director Terrence Malick, who did The Tree of Life, directed a movie a couple years ago on a man who's blessed in the Catholic Church, Franz Jägerstadter, who was a conscientious objector in World War II in Nazi Germany, in Austria. It's called The Hidden Life. came out last year. After The Tree of Life, probably one of the best movies I've ever seen. But this man was separated from his family, his wife, his kids, his farm, his village, his country, and spent many dark days in solitary confinement. But he knew that he couldn't join the Nazis. He knew that what they were destroying was a real vision of human life that was based on the Catholic faith that he lived out in his village. And when he spent those days in prison, it wasn't him fighting against himself to try and do the right thing. He was at peace, even, you know, with the fear and the you know, physical beatings and the real loneliness and, you know, the tears of being away from his family. But the thing that gave him courage and hope was that he had lived this life of virtue. He knew what endured and what didn't. And so he was able to be quite at peace even in the midst of darkness. He had hope in what seemed like were hopeless times. That's why, and this is the last point here, just going back to sadness. Sadness and despair are different. Jesus says in the Gospels, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. The tears that we shed for the way that things are, not the way that, because they're not how they should be, there's a real virtue in that. Not everything can be fixed, and so anger and fear and despair there on the right, sometimes we can't jump in the car and we can't do it. We can't fix it. Sometimes the thing that we can do is weep and mourn for the real evils in the world. And that leads us, the saints tell us, to pray for the intervention of God and for the salvation of those who would do evil. What began with Plato and Aristotle just on this level, in this life, once you get the infusion of God himself come to earth like a lightning bolt, these virtues will sort of become three-dimensional. They'll become, like Pinocchio, a real boy. And so when we talk later on about grace and the sacraments, this isn't just me doing my own thing. Through our baptism, the virtues are infused into our souls. They're given not just my own life. They're given the life of God, too. They're going to run not just on my own willpower. They're going to run on the willpower of the one who created my will this beautiful dance between the Lord and me, between grace, his grace, and my nature, which he created and redeemed. The real beauty and goodness and truth of the moral life finds its fulfillment in that. And that's what Pope John Paul II was talking about at the beginning of that encyclical, which we mentioned, that the moral life eventually, and even primarily, is not about rules, and regulations, it's not about laws and freedom, it's not even about virtues and vices and the harmony in the soul. The real point of the moral life is to be like Christ, who's alive, who's right in front of me. 
That's the whole journey and adventure, the wild journey of being a Christian, is that that relationship with Christ is my primary relationship, and it's not fake, and it's not in my mind. It's real. He's here. So to be healthy and strong enough and fleet of foot enough and well-trained enough to not just plod along between, behind the Lord. He's a swift runner. And so we too need to be fleet of foot and swift. And the life of virtue and the moral life trains us for that journey.